Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. So stand with me. Let's look together at God's Word this morning. Matthew 12, verses 22 through 29. Then... A demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man can't be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Baal Zebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the Spirit, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, your word is precious and it leads us and it is light, light in our darkness. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And as we think about darkness and blindness, Father, we ask that you'll allow your light to penetrate it. Father, may it not be mere words, but may there be power, the spirit and conviction as we look together at your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. A demon-possessed man who is blind and mute is brought to Jesus and Jesus heals him. I want to make a few notes about the passage before talking about blindness. Demon-possessed man who is blind and mute was brought to Jesus, he healed him. Demon possession caused him to be blind and mute. And Jesus therapeuo him. <laughs> Jesus did therapy for him. Jesus healed him. The therapy of God is always healing and whatever God does in our lives is therapy for us whether it's for our physical bodies or our souls but this is a, a, a rather interesting occasion because Jesus therapeuoed him healed him and didn't cast out the demon you understand sometimes it says it cast him out but here it says he healed the man of a demon that caused him to be blind and mute I think this is one of the, the many passages in Scripture which render the divide that we cast between the physical and the spiritual non-existent. It's a demon and yet it causes physical maladies. And we see that demons in Scripture are constantly causing physical problems. They're not limited to some psychic benefit or psychic deficit, some trouble that they cause or something they do in the mind, but they are... They're able to do it work in a variety of areas. When God gives Satan the power to, to afflict Job, it's not just mental or spiritual, it's physical. He comes on him using people, using wind, using all his body. And so we see that physical illness is tied to spiritual illness. It's not, all the, it's not always the result of sin, but it's, it's, it's spiritual. And that's why in this era of COVID, it's important that we remember that Satan is at work. It's not just a virus, it's Satan. And God is at work. And so we can't deal with illness only by 
the, the physical. We have to acknowledge that God is working the spiritual, and that Satan is working the spiritual through it as well. So he heals this man. He heals his body of the demon. And he speaks and he sees. The reaction of the crowd is amazement, of course. And they're saying, notice how they put their question. They put, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? It's not a statement, this man must be the son of David. Don't you agree? But they are saying, this man cannot be the son of David. It's though they were blind men as well. And they had in their darkness just a little bit of, you know, just a tiny little bit. Whoa. Am I seeing something? Do it. And then they say, but he can't be, can he? And when the Pharisees hear that the crowds are saying this, when they hear that Jesus has done this great deed, they say, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebul, Lord of the Flies. Don't ever read that lousy book. It is garbage. Okay, Beelzebul means Lord of the Flies. It was the name in the Bible for for Satan, Jesus calls him the Lord of the Flies. That's exactly what it means. If a man writes a book and calls it the Lord of Flies, he's called it Satan. And it's not a book you want to spend your time reading or have your kids spend their time reading. It's garbage. And I can tell you that from experience. I read it before I knew how truly it was garbage. And I thought it was garbage even then. It's garbage. There are many, many things that are garbage that we should have nothing to do with. And they stay at it. American Idol. Yeah, I mean, they say right what they are. They're offering you an idol, and you go, I like American Idol as a Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, I know that that show is now probably defunct, but I thought it was ironic that in that era that we say we have no idols, but we call our shows American Idol. So we, we've got to recognize that everything is spiritual. There's nothing in the world that is not spiritual. That Satan is working in all things as God is working. Satan to bring blindness, God to, to bring us to light. So knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself, he knows the thoughts of men. He knows the thoughts when he's here on earth. He knows what they're thinking. Knowing their thoughts. It's a deep statement. He knew what was going on in their mind. Now, I can sometimes read your thoughts. You know, you can look at a face and say, that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is knowing deep things. Remember when uh, they brought Nathaniel to him. He said, I saw you were, when you were under the fig tree. Was that what it was? And Nathaniel goes, my Lord and my God, I mean, how did you know what I was doing and what I, where I was? Jesus knows our thoughts. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what you're going to be thinking later today. It's, it's one of the most glorious and sobering statements, knowing their thoughts. Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. The city or house divided against itself will not stand. In other words, if Satan is fighting Satan, if Satan is casting out Satan, he's divided. How is that kingdom going to stand? That's not a fearsome kingdom. If, it's, if there's a civil war going on, the outside nations don't have much to worry about that country during the period of the civil war. If Satan is fighting himself, well, what do we have to fear? And then he goes on and says, He's making arguments against this accusation they're making in their minds and in front of the people. He says, if I by Beelzebul, Lord of the flies, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. Obviously, they have sons who are exorcists. They go around saying, I cast you out. Now, were they actually doing it? I doubt they were. 
I think it's like most exorcisms today that are all mumbo jumbo woo 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 and nothing spiritual going on but a person looking like they're mighty powerful and brave because they're in there with the candles and the smells and garbage garbage Jesus just says go Jesus tells us resist the devil and he'll flee from you you don't need all the bells and the incantations and the mumbo jumbo Satan doesn't like righteousness Satan doesn't like people who acknowledge Jesus. And if you acknowledge Jesus and you proclaim the name of Jesus, that's all you need. So if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom are your own sons doing it? <laughs> In other words, look, I'm doing what your sons are doing. So not a statement that the sons are doing it right. I don't think they were. Nevertheless, if I'm doing it by Satan, how much more are your sons? Because all I do is say, be healed. And your sons are going around with mumbo jumbo. For this reason, they will be your judges, your sons. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he's casting the dilemma. You understand? He's creating the chasm. Which is it? The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of hell? If it's the kingdom of hell, then you're there with your sons. If it's the kingdom of heaven by which I have done this great miracle, then you have a choice. <laughs> you need to make a decision. The kingdom of God has come upon you. And he adds one more consideration in the argument. Or how can anyone enter the man's strong man's house carrying off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he'll plunder his house? Jesus is saying, look, Satan may be strong, but look at who's plundering his house. I'm coming in and I'm doing things and I'm beating him up and I'm taking away from him and you're going to worship him. And you're going to say, I'm him? <laughs> so we have a blind man, and he stands for you, and he stands for the world. He stands for everyone. He stands for me. He stands for all of us. Blindness is not a physical condition alone in Scripture. It's always something deeper. Blind men, adultery is not a physical condition. It's always something deeper. It's a sin. Blindness is tied in the same way to a sin, to a darkness. And this man is blind. He hears about Jesus. <laughs> He's also mute. Hears about Jesus. And man, this guy is going to face the choices of a lifetime. And ironically, the passage doesn't give us an answer to what he chooses. We have another example of a blind man's similar situation in, in John chapter 9. And that chapter does reveal at the end the choices the man makes, the blind man makes. This guy, we're not told. He hears about Jesus. Does he want to go and hear him? Go and see him? Does he want to go? We don't know. What we do know is that he was brought to Jesus. In other words, he didn't go on his own. He was brought. Someone took him. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's not he went. It's he was brought. It's, he's passive. Someone else is active. He was brought to Jesus. Does he want to go? His friends want to take him to Jesus. Is it that he lets them? Does he beg them to bring him? Uh, maybe he wanted to go. His friends, he says to them, take me to Jesus. I can't get there. Take me, take me. And so they take him. That's how it happens. We don't know. But blindness is awful. Blindness is awful. None of us wants to be blind. Yet to the blind man, the alternatives to blindness can, can actually seem equally bad. And this is true physically and it's true spiritually. I told you the story a few, 
a few months ago, a year ago, about a, a man in our church who'd been a beggar for years in Africa because he was blind. Came here, got an operation to he, that would remove the cataracts that had come upon him as a boy. Doctor thought he could see, wasn't sure. Said that the optic nerve was working. The man said, I can't see. It became pretty clear to us that whatever had happened, this man's life was thrown into a tizzy by this operation. That his life would suddenly change. He's 30 years old and now he can see. And his only way of making his, his path through this life has been by begging. And he said, I can't see, I can't see. And he maintained that he couldn't see after the surgery. And no one knew for certain. But it is obvious that people can prefer blindness to sight. The alternatives to blindness to the blind man can seem even scarier than the blindness. I was born with a form of blindness that's very minor, color blindness. 10% of the American male population has color blindness. I can't see certain colors. I wish I could see reds and greens and the interplay between them and the colors that are in that area of the spectrum where the rods and cones in my eyes don't see. I have a, a void of rods and cones in between, I believe it's the, in a part of the spectrum, I think it's, the, it's not called the red-green, but it's, it effectively it's the red-green part of the spectrum. And so everything there is indistinct. You know, it just, it looks like something or something else. I can't see it. I'm 61 years old. Do I wish I could see what I can't see? Well, yeah, at times I really do. My wife tells me that when we're driving down the road and the colors are out in the uh, autumn, that the best colors I never point out, all I see are the oranges or the yellows because I can see yellow and orange, but I don't see the reds at all. So the colors that she really likes the best, and probably most of you like the best, and there are, there's about 10% of us here, guys, right? You, you suffer the same thing. I don't see them. Yeah, I, it's nothing to me. I don't know what I'm missing. I've been in it for 61 years. If you told me I could be healed, that there was a shot, and they are working on some DNA cures for colorblindness, I would say, is it worth the risk? Would I take the shot? I don't know. You know, I'm really not sure I want to take the risk of seeing or a shot that would mess with my eyes, right? I've lived 61 years. Same is true with another condition I inherited. I inherited hemophilia, and now they really do have a genetic cure for my condition, about $200,000, but it will make me normal. Do I want to be normal like you? <laughs> I look at it, no, you know? Dr. Wing tells me that my blood condition is a nice thing as I get older. I don't have to take aspirin to keep my blood from clotting and killing me, you know? Do I want to get rid of this condition? I don't think I do. I know I'll never pay $200,000 to get rid of it. Here are the glories I want to say to you. Here we find the glories of being in a life where there is need and want and poverty. Let me posit two people to you. Jesus comes to town. And he has in, his, in himself the ability to cure blindness. We have two people. One is a wealthy blind man. The other is a poor blind man. You're the wealthy blind man. You grew up in a home that had money, a rich home. You're cared for. 
Your parents probably aren't running out after Jesus because they don't have that kind of need. You know, Jesus said that many of the people were following him because he gave them bread. Your home has bread. So are you, your parents running out after Jesus? No, they, they can take care of you. They don't run you out with the beggars and the common people. You live in the style that you grew up in. You are blind, but you're not a beggar. You're not a typical blind man. You have servants. You're an upstanding, cared-for blind man, a blind man of means rather than just a poor beggar. But then assume for a moment there's another blind man in the town. He's not you, wealthy and well-cared-for. He's a beggar. No cushion. I mean... Nothing to lean back on. No bank account. No family of means. No servants. No nothing. Your blindness, that man's blindness is not eased by servants as yours is. He has no family caring for him in his old age. Does that man go to Jesus? Well, there's certainly many more inducements for that man than for the man who grew up in the lap of luxury, aren't there? Of course, there are questions. If you're not blind, can you beg any longer? And what will you do then? Will people still give to a man who sees but who was blind for 50 years? It's a risk for the beggar as well, maybe even a bigger risk. Blindness is spiritual as well as physical. We are blind spiritually whether or not we are blind physically. And in the Bible, the physically blind men are pictures of you and me. That's who we are, blind men. We are born blind. When John sent from his prison cell to have his disciples ask Jesus if he was the promised one or if they should look for another, the first thing Jesus said to the messengers was, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. It was a reference by Jesus to Isaiah's prophecy of the Messiah that Isaiah had said, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. This is a statement about physical things, but it's really about spiritual things. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will, will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy to God. We'll be shouting for joy. Here's a blind mute man. Two of the conditions that Isaiah said. The eyes of this blind man are opened physically. A miracle in our passage this morning. Man is granted sight. The tongue of a mute man is freed. Both conditions here in the same man. A miracle. A great miracle. But let me ask you a question. What does this blind man make of what Jesus has done? Let me ask, does the blind man know he's blind when he goes to Jesus? Well, you say, of course he knows he's blind. He has to know he's blind. He can't make his way around. He, he has to be helped. He's a beggar. He's a blind man. He knows he's blind. So in one sense, this man must be aware that he's blind. He's not, after all, said to be deaf, is he? He's, he's mute, but he's not deaf. So he can hear other people talk. He can't talk back, and that renders him spiritually and emotionally, relationally crippled as well. But he hears them describe seeing, and he knows he can neither speak nor do what they describe when they say they see things. But, 
maybe he has developed some abilities in himself that, that he thinks are what sight is like. He has an intuition, perhaps, in his mind of objects. Perhaps in his hearing, he's developed an ability. They say that people can do this to echolocate, kind of like the bats do. And so he can hear the, the echoes bouncing, and he has some awareness that there's objects out there. Maybe he thinks these intuitions that he has are, are what they describe, but they have them in a much richer way. Maybe he connects sight to his sense of touch. You don't know what he's thinking. He has no idea what he's missing. Years ago, my brother, who was also colorblind, decided after reading up on colorblindness, because his wife worked for an ophthalmologist, brought the books home on colorblindness, he decided he wasn't really colorblind. He read that colorblind people make up for not seeing colors by becoming very good at discerning patterns in shades. They can see patterns. They can see shades of colors, dark versus light. And, and so he, he realized that according to the studies, colorblind people are very good at discriminating in certain ways. They can, they can see right through camouflage. You guys who only look at colors, look at camouflage, and you're confused, but we see the pattern because we're not trained to look at colors. And we immediately discern a weird pattern. We say, that's not right. But you're looking at colors, and you're fooled. So my brother decided that he wasn't colorblind. He was what he called heterospectrally oriented, <laughs> which means I see other things. Hetero, other. I see other things that you don't see. So does this man even know what he's missing? Or does he think, well, I'm just heterospectrally oriented? <laughs> Theoretically, he knows what he's missing. But we're not talking about theory. In hard truth, does he know what he's missing? Well, unless he became blind. No. He doesn't know what he's bliss missing. He's never seen. This is the case with all lifelong genetic illnesses. I know when I have tendonitis in my elbow, I know that this is pain. I know that it's not normal. I know that a year ago I didn't have it, and I'm hoping that in another year it goes away. I know this is pain. But imagine if you were born with some kind of arthritis from childhood that made all your joints always ache all the time. Would you know what tendonitis is? Would you know what it was to have a joint that operated normally? This is the fabric of your life. Other people say, I don't have it, but you hear them say, you don't know it. You don't know what you're missing. Sin and death. The condition of sin, and the end it leads to, death, they're lifelong, and they're genetic. And the person who is born a sinner doesn't even know it. Oh, yeah. Theoretically, I know it. Theory, yeah, I'm a sinner. But until your eyes are opened and you see the first glint of God's light, you don't even know what you are missing. Because you're blind. You're blind. And you've been that way since birth. And you talk about what you see and what you're experiencing, and there is this whole vast spectrum of glory and power that you don't that you think you've seen because you have some kind of vision but you've never actually seen it all and you have 
no idea about at all. At all. You just don't know it. And so we know we're missing something. We know that life ends in death. And we know that life isn't pleasant. We think, okay, something's not there. It's like the colorblind man making up for not seeing colors by looking at shades and patterns. Okay, I may not know everything, but I know something's not right. And so colorblind makes up looking at patterns, looking at shades. And me and my sin, having grown up, knowing that there, something's wrong with me. Something's the matter. Hearing it described, knowing that life is painful, knowing that it ends in death. These, and people say they're happy and people say they found something. It, you know that in your life you're missing something. It's it's. It's not there, and so you start turning to the patterns, right? You start turning to the shades, like me with colorblindness. And so you seek what you're lacking in relationships. You think, if I get into a good relationship, finally, I'll, maybe that will be the light, the joy. You seek it sexually. You seek it through money. You seek to see light. You, see some, you seek something that will bring you out of the darkness of your life by drugs, alcohol. And while you're pursuing these things, you're saying, I'm not blind. I'm not blind. I'm not blind at all. I'm having fun. I'm not ill. I'm not dying. I'm enjoying myself. This is life. Now let me add at this point that we need to understand that one of the great inducements for people to acknowledge their need and turn to Jesus is need. Knowledge of need, great depth of need. As Christians, and before we become Christians, we are blessed by our needs. Poverty is not an enemy in leading people to Jesus. Do you understand it in the Bible? Jesus never to the best of our knowledge, there is not one recorded instance when Jesus gave a poor person a penny. But he gave them light. He gave them light. He didn't give them the things that you live for. Money. Material things. Fame. Being thought highly of. He gave them a knowledge of their sin and an ability to understand their deeper need. Jesus calls us to be generous to the poor to give. But he never said it was the job of his people to wipe out poverty. In fact, what he said is the poor you will always have with you. I must give to the poor and so must you. But the work of God's kingdom goes on among the poor. And to be born into poverty and not having all the wealth of all the people that have everything they need is a rich blessing. And we do not want ourselves to be the people who say you've got to be rich to know Jesus. No, in fact, what we need to stop doing is making it out that wealth 
is a good and poverty an evil. Instead of trying to raise everyone who's poor so they can be wealthy and have no need of Jesus, what you and I need is to become poor as Jesus became poor. We need to ennoble not having. We need to understand that not to have is to be rich in the things of God and to run away from the pursuit of wealth because the pursuit of wealth is one of the great inoculators against our need to see. It's one of the great things that keeps us from ever thinking we need to see. So the world is filled with blind people who don't want to see, don't care to see, don't really believe there is anything beyond what they see. And I've become convinced as I have stood by the, the, the beds of, of people who are dying, especially older people, and as I've talked with them about their souls as they face eternity, people who've never worshipped God, I've become convinced that in talking to them about death and eternity at the end of life, and everyone knows they're at the end of life, I know it, they know it. As I talk to them about Christ and what he offers them, his offer to bear the weight of their sins, that they are suffering from the inertia of decades of saying, I see, I see, I see. And at the end of life, they'd rather say, I see, and I'm in charge here, than admit they're not. It's just inertia. They just can't change. You know, this has been 70 years. They're not going to say they didn't see for 69 of those 70 years or 70.1 of 70.2 of those years. They're not going to say that. It's inertia. How good God is to let us see our blindness whenever, but especially young, especially when we're young. So the man is brought to Jesus. He can't speak, so he doesn't ask Jesus to heal him. But, of course, Jesus doesn't wait for permission. He doesn't wait for a request from the man. The guy is mute, right? He heals the man. He just acts, and this is God's way. He acts. He doesn't ask first. He knocks you to the ground by his love, by his power, and then he says, follow me. And this is always his way. He he gives you a blow and suddenly your eyes for a brief second, I'm not talking about a physical, it can be a physical blow, but he, he shakes your world so that suddenly your eyes open a crack. Here he does it, the blind man, by healing him. The blind man still faces a bigger dilemma. We're going to talk about this next week. The dilemma is, now that he sees, is he going to see? Do you understand what I'm saying? Now that he, his eyes are working, is he going to see the truth? Don't think it's a take, don't take it for granted. Don't think it's a given that this man is going to see now that he sees. It's fascinating to realize that with the Apostle Paul, what God did was exactly the opposite of what he did with this blind man. He makes him know he's blind, not by healing him of the blindness, but by making him blind. He's on the road to Damascus and God shines with light. Bang! Suddenly, Paul falls to the ground and he's blinded. And in his blindness, he now, for the first time in his life, begins to see a little bit. He does it with Zacchaeus. He says, Zacchaeus, you know, I'm coming to your house today. Suddenly, Zacchaeus' life has changed. 
does it with Peter and Andrew. He says, hey, guys, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they follow him. He does it with Isaiah in the Old Testament. We read in Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. So I want to close by asking you, what have you seen of God? What glimpse of his power has he granted you? Let me tell you, if he loves you, he has come to you and he has struck you with a blow that makes you say there's something beyond this. And believe me, for this blind man, having his sight given back is a rocking of his universe. It is a rocking. It's a rocking physically and it's a rocking spiritually. What have you seen of God? What have you seen and how have you responded? Because when you see God, suddenly you see yourself. Because in the light that God gives you of himself, in the light of the healing or the whatever it is that God comes to you, and there's something beyond here. I am colorblind. I'm not seeing things. There is a world that I thought I knew, and it's not, it's not a world I know. When that happens, you're going to look at yourself, and you're going to say, woe is me, like Isaiah when he sees God in heaven. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am nothing. And I've seen the Lord, the God Almighty, like Paul on the road to Damascus, he thinks in his pride, I'm the measure of all things, I'm the man, I'm riding from town to town, I'm throwing the Christians in prison, I'm in charge, and I'm doing what I want to do, and I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, and suddenly the light comes, and he's thrown to the ground, and he looks up to heaven, and he says, oh, who are you, Lord, who are you? And the voice comes down from heaven, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you have persecuted. And suddenly Paul is not what he thought he was. Have you come to the end of yourself? God is calling you to see him. And in seeing him, to see that you are nothing, but that he is everything. And that's the choice this man faces. And we're going to come to that next week. And I want to say to you who are Christians in, in, this, in closing, don't think that this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. If your life is a life where you have not repented of new sins and where you do not see yourself in new ways with new weaknesses being made clear to you and new repentances going on day after day, like me last Sunday saying, woe to me because I'm a proud man. If God doesn't do these things with you, well, we'll talk about this next week. But you're in trouble. You're in trouble. God, open our eyes so that we see ourselves. Because once we see ourselves, we'll run to Jesus. Don't know what happens with this man. Don't know. But I pray that God allows you to run to Jesus and to see your darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We thank you for your word and its glory and we thank you for Jesus and his rich mercy and glory. Father, show us our blindness. Make us know what we don't see. Father, give us a vision of you and of your son and of your power and of your love. Give us a vision, Father, of our, our worminess, our measly nature, our nothingness so that we are not proud of our 
riches and our wisdom and our, our intelligence or any other thing, Father, our looks, but that we look to Jesus and say, I am nothing. I'm a man of unclean lips. I've seen the Lord. Father, then reach out and make us whole. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.